Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 30th, 2009. Episode 110 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnay. Always our pleasure to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. At the controls is the wingman, Chris Boizel. Close to Chris. <laughs> All right, Environmental Annie sitting in with us as well. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, should be joining us here shortly. We've got a packed show today. We're going to have uh, Dr. Richard Shaughnessy from the University of Tulsa's Indoor Air Quality Program. We're going to have a little halftime segment, bring in Brian McFarland from Legends Insurance and uh, Carl Grimes. We'll bring Dr. Wow in. We'll go back and... Uh, do the second half of the show with Dr. Shaughnessy, and then we're going to bring everybody back together for the roundup. Check out that IAQ Radio website and blog every week after the show at www.iaqradio.com. Before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To uh, join us live, you can just call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Press the number 1, and you can join the show. You can also stream the show live uh, through the TalkShoe site. Just go to the www.iaqradio.com site. Follow the link that says go to the show or you can go to iTunes and download our show. So you can listen live, download it later, whatever you like. Don't forget, we also have those IICRC Continuing Education Credits or IAQ Council Renewal Credits. Just email me and request a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We also like to get suggestions, requests, etc. And you can email me at that address or cliff at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. 
sorry to report. No correct answers for last week's microband trivia question. You know, listeners, you can win a cool prize by correctly answering the microband trivia questions. Several trivia questions do remain unanswered. It's easy to submit your answer. Just go to www.ieqradio.com, click the trivia link at the top of the page to submit your answer. The microband trivia question for Friday, January 30th, 2009. We use we now use ultraviolet light in many ways. In medicine, ultraviolet light is used to help kill bacteria and viruses and to sterilize equipment. It is also used to disinfect products and containers. In science, ultraviolet light is used to study atoms and to learn about the warmer objects in outer space. Several animals, including fish, birds, butterflies, and other insects can see ultraviolet light. Name the scientist who in 1801 discovered ultraviolet light. Back to you, Joe. Very timely. All right. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Shaughnessy. Dr. Shaughnessy received his PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Tulsa, where he is currently serving as the program manager for indoor air research. He is their university spokesman on issues related to indoor air quality and radon. He's also a world-renowned expert on indoor air quality issues. Dr. Shaughnessy has taught and conducted research abroad in locations including China, South Africa, Australia, and others. He was also the recipient of the 1996 National Trainer of the Year Award. Dr. Shaughnessy has served as the principal advisor to the EPA on the development of IAQ Diagnostics, hands-on assessment of building ventilation and pollutant transport course, and he's been developing IAQ courses for EPA since back in 1991. He continues to conduct research on indoor environmental quality in schools and student performance. He was also recently a section editor for the AIHA Green Book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Molds. Dr. Shaughnessy and one of our guests from a previous show, Dr. J. David Miller, are conference chairs for the April 27th through 29 Approaches to Managing Mold in Buildings Conference, sponsored by the University of Tulsa. The conference will be held in Orlando, Florida, and will feature a who's who of speakers. For information on that conference, you can go to the universityoftulsa.edu, so it's just utulsa.edu forward slash IAQ program. We also put the link on our invitations this week, and I'll have it up on the uh, website when we're done. A little music for Dr. Shaughnessy. Okay. Hello, Dr. Shaughnessy. Do we have you? I sure. I'm uh, here for you guys. All right. Great. Thanks. Looks like we've got a bunch of people tuning in to hear you. And uh, let's get started with some questions. What Can you tell us a little bit about the University of Tulsa's indoor air quality program and, and what you do there? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's quite an introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and, and you labeled, uh, I mean, you went through quite a bit. Uh, but uh, we, we've been going at it uh, related to the indoor environment since around 1987 here at the university. And 
we're involved in all different aspects. As uh, again, you went through in my bio, in my bio it uh, ranges from education to uh, uh, intensive research related to certain aspects of the indoor environment. Air cleaning is uh, one of my uh, uh, subjects that I very much like to like to explore and uh, and uh, determine what's new out there, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and, and, and we've done so many uh, projects in homes and in uh, public buildings and schools related to the indoor environment and uh, mold uh, remediation, uh, ultraviolet irradiation, ozone, which uh, uh, you'd think has come and gone, but it's still around and still very much a problem uh, related to the indoor environment. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's been a challenge, and it's been interesting uh, for the past 20-plus years. Does the university have any degree programs in indoor air quality or courses that are part of the degree programs? For, for the most part, the, uh, the uh, indoor air program is housed in the chemical engineering department. I'm a chemical engineer myself, and we do not have a specific degree program related to indoor air. Uh, we do have courses related to indoor air quality and very popular courses, uh, but at the present time, we don't have a degree program on indoor air alone, per se, uh, yet uh, it's not uh, out of the question in the future. You know, going back in time a little bit, you know, you said that the university's been doing it since 1987. Did you get interested while you were there, or did they already have these programs while you were studying there? I was I was working on my PhD back then, and at the same time I was teaching chemistry and physical chemistry over at a junior college and going back and forth. You know, uh, prior to that, I'd, I'd worked in a engineering design firm uh, looking at the air and wastewater treatment, and uh, which always fascinated me. So when it came uh, later, uh, I was getting my PhD. It, it um, uh, the, some, the local allergy clinic uh, began to contact me about problems outdoors and then some of the patients complaining about problems they had in their homes. So it was kind of a natural uh, development and just uh, falling into place that it, uh, it, it was a very exciting time because things were occurring very rapidly at that time and, and radons became a huge issue back in the late 80s and uh, gained a lot of public uh, public attention, which, uh, which was good um, uh, in, in terms of better developing and uh, 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 trying to educate the public on the indoor environment and the impact as a whole and other types of things that perhaps they should be more concerned about than just radon. I'm curious with the change in, in administration here, you've worked a lot with EPA on the Tools for Schools program and other programs. Do you expect to see any changes uh, with respect to EPA policy on indoor air quality issues? I, you know, that's a good question. I, I, wish, I, could, I wish I could predict that and uh, uh, tell you which, uh, which direction they're going to go. But, but typically they're reacting to directives given to them by Congress or the, the present administration. 
And it seems more than ever right now the uh, green building movement and uh, sustainability and, of course, uh, energy issues are at the forefront of, uh, of the subjects being, uh, uh, being mulled around. So this is, uh, this is the direction that I anticipate they're going to continue. They've, they've set out uh, upon that path for, for quite a few years now, and, and I think it will become more important uh, uh, as uh, in the next uh, four to eight years, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see what comes of it. I, I, I certainly hope that indoor air quality as a whole is not put on the back burner. Um, it, it, it's so important. It's, it's one of those issues that uh, simply because we're in a recession or something, you don't, uh, you don't put it on the back shelf because it has direct implications related to health, related to productivity, related to performance, and, uh, and uh, specifically related to the economy. It's uh, kind of one of those things that you're a car manufacturer, you don't pull the airbags out when, um, when the economy is going bad. So uh, I, I would hope that the emphasis uh, remains there related to IQ, and I believe it will. You know, last night my wife and I were watching television, and they had this school principal, and she was from a little town in Georgia. And what they did is they introduced in this policy a sugar-free policy in the schools. No, no candy, no soft drinks with sugar, and so on and so forth. And what they found were that having the sugar-free policy test performance on these standardized tests improved. And last time we were talking to you, which I guess is a little over two years on the radio, you were doing some studying on the effects of ventilation on standardized test performance. And I wondered, you know, whether you ever finished the study and you can kind of enlighten us and our listeners on what you found out. Yeah, Cliff, that, I mean, that's been a, that's been a fantastic project we're working on and we're continuing that. And, uh, uh, primarily, yeah, we're working toward uh, looking at certain indoor environmental parameters and seeing what impact, uh, to what extent it may have related to uh, performance, uh, student performance, uh, academic achievement. And, and we feel this is a very important direction that we need to further explore. I mean, in, in the process of what we've been doing uh, we recently did a literature review uh, of all the peer-reviewed literature related to academic achievement. And we found somewhere on the order of just the peer-reviewed literature, uh, 24,000 papers written on academic performance alone. Hmm. But uh, I mean, amazingly, it amazed me, not one of these papers looked at the association of academic performance or achievement and uh, anything specific like uh, ventilation, which which is the fundamental key to providing a an acceptable, uh, productive environment. So, I you know that, I found that very interesting, and and so and and um, that's what we've been exploring. We've been looking at uh, performance. Uh, is there a direct impact? We we feel this is critical. I mean, we we feel it's very important from the standpoint that, especially given the economy now and the recession. Um, school administrators are faced, as they always have, but, uh, but even more so now, with uh, having to make decisions as to their budget and how to effectively 
you know, get the most bang for the buck. And, and in doing so, they need to, uh, they've always needed to, and they are even more so now, to, uh, they, they're trying to substantiate or, or, or they uh, make some, be able to justify, uh, put it that way, uh, some sort of, if they're going to make an investment, what's the payback? And, and with uh, what we've found, at least to this point, we've uh, looked in well over 100 schools. Uh, uh, we've looked at all the confounding factors and what and we've found that uh, there is a, a relationship, an association, a linear association between ventilation at low ventilation rates and, and as you increase ventilation, uh, a reward in terms of uh, improved academic performance. So, so I mean, we're and we're continuing this. We're we're uh, we've published on it. We're uh, published several times. We're uh, there's a study, a parallel study going on in Europe right now, in uh, several countries, looking at uh, similar problems, and uh, we're tied into that. And um, and uh, we're also now venturing into a whole other district uh, with over. We'll be in a. Uh, somewhere in the order of 140 classrooms coming up in the uh, in the next two years, and uh, we've been very busy trying to uh, set out monitors uh, uh, and then uh, gather all the information needed to draw these associations. I'm curious. Uh, you, you've done a lot, or you're in the process of doing a lot on ventilation. The last time we talked, we talked about maybe venturing into some other indoor environmental quality issues, maybe like water-damaged buildings. Have you been able to do that, or is the funding not there yet? We've, I mean, we've gathered. We've gathered a tremendous amount of information in the process. Um, we, some of our funding has been provided by, uh, uh, actually, from IAQA. Um, we're, we're very fortunate to have that. Uh, our more recent funding has come from the EPA to look at uh, the analyses that uh, are ongoing. And, and part of that will be to further explore the classroom parameters and basic uh, uh, problems that are, that are present in all the classrooms we've been in and, and try to get a, a further determination how those may, to some extent, uh, associate with uh, uh, improved or reduced uh, performance. So, you know, intuitively, this makes sense, doesn't it, guys? I yes. mean, you know, you, you provide an acceptable environment. Uh, you provide an acceptable classroom uh, that is more conducive to learning. Yeah. Um, you're going to get better, better performance. And yet, uh, at the same time, very few studies are able to specifically demonstrate this because, you know, as you might imagine, there are so many of these confounding factors related to the children, and so to really get something significant, you've got to look at a lot of classrooms, a lot of uh, individual schools, and uh, and the power of the study is in how many how many uh, people or how many schools are able uh, you know, we're able to venture into. So 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 that that's really what what we're doing, trying to gather more information, um, and and other than just ventilation, sure, I mean. Uh, we're looking at uh, cleaning. Uh, does that have an effect? I mean, you guys, I, I know, Cliff, you've been in so many schools, and you, you've seen uh, the clutter factor. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Everything piled up. 
It's my, my office. Bed. <laughs> 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 and we've got, you know, you, you see everything, upholstered uh, uh, furnishing, you see plants, you see animals and everything. And, and, and then again, you, it, it just makes common sense that certainly there's some impact of all the allergen collectors that we have in schools. So, yes, we are further exploring some of that. Uh, that's part of our new study that we're going into uh, in 140 classrooms. So, um, and we're, we're excited about this. It's, uh, it's, it's very tedious work, but uh, we're uh, forging ahead as best we can. You know, you've talked about how tedi- tedious this is studying it and, and publishing on it and so on and so forth. Is anyone lis- listening to what you have to say? You know, have you testified at Congress? Have you, you know, testified in, you know, in, in front of people that deal with budgeting for schools and, and, and so on and so forth on this issue? You know, I, I, you know, that's the age-old question. You know, what good is science if you're working in a void, a vacuum of sorts? Okay. And and clearly, that's one of our missions. I mean, I, I don't want to be an academic institution which just puts out dialogue that, you know, has to be translated into another language <laughs> or something. I, I want it to be useful. And, uh uh, yes, I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, interest really by uh, the National Education Association, the uh, uh, Department of Education to some extent. But no, we have not uh, gotten to the point where we're testifying or providing this evidence further. And uh, we, we it, it's also a function, as you might imagine, of time. I mean, we... I'm I'm not there to market everything. We are working to get it out in in the journals, and and then we'll take it the next step as best we can. The EPA certainly wants the information that we have, so mm-hmm. they could interpret it and and make it more practical and useful for uh, for the people out there to be able to understand and use. So, no no calls from President Obama yet. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. We're uh, we open, ho- though. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you get to that point. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's move on to uh, we we've had several shows on the Green Book now, Richard. We've had uh, Don Weeks on a couple times, and we had Dr. Miller on, and uh, we'd like to get your thoughts on the Green Book, and then talk a little bit about the conference that you have coming up. Um, in your opinion, what what's different about the Green Book? when you compare it to other documents from the American Conference of Government and Industrial Hygienists or the AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, EPA, Health Canada, et cetera, what, what sets that book apart from these other documents? Yeah. Uh, first of all, yeah, being integrally, I mean, just involved with this effort, it, it, uh, it was the culmination of many years of work and, uh, it was uh, came out of uh, discussions that were uh, probably originated within ACGIH at the time, uh, but also AIHA was uh, concurrently looking at some of the uh, in pretty much in the same direction in terms of trying to reformulate the information that we have out there. And they're in the Green Book. Uh, When we say the Green Book, that's the Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, which is published by AIHA. Um, I I found it an incredible, daunting effort. And and, uh, when I say years of work, I've seen years. This is uh, probably the origins of this were back in early 2000. And 
Um, and there was quite a bit of uh, controversy at the time, as you might expect, in, in, in even taking on such an effort. And when I say that, what I mean is the difference between this document and other uh, uh, predecessors uh, to it, uh, such as the uh, ACGIH uh, document in 1999, is that uh, the ACGIH document was was put together by a committee, and 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 I was on that committee with uh, wonderful researchers: Janet Mocker, Harriet Burge, uh, Don Milton, John Martiny, uh, just just uh, uh, wonderful researchers. But but the the document as a whole, which is kind of one of the reference documents, the ACGIH document, it, it was really put together by that committee, the Bioaerosols Committee of ACGIH. The AIHA document, though, is uh, very much different. And when I say that, the attempt was from the onset to, to bring in many, many different opinions, to try to uh, create a balance. And I'm not sure if Don or David... Uh, talked about this, but I'm, I'm sure they at least mentioned it, that the idea was not to just bring in uh, scientists and academia, but it was to create a balance between uh, uh, that, uh, that sector and then the public sector, government agencies, and then private sector. And, and in doing so, you're not, it, 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 of course there were differences of opinion that had to be worked through, but that's, that's healthy. And, and that's what came out in, uh, I feel very well in, in this document, is, is that balance of information, that what we can agree on at this point in time, uh, which is so important. And uh, I, I just was fascinated by the effort as a whole. I, I, uh, I commend uh, people like Brad Brezant, uh, Don Weeks, uh, David Miller for their uh, patience as uh, we all moved through this. And, and there were so many other authors that that uh, contributed. I mean, there there are probably at least fifty to sixty contributors uh, at, at least that uh, uh, put something into this document from all the different uh, walks of uh, indoor air. So I, I just uh, think it's a wonderful document. It uh, it it does. Uh, I think it is. Uh, brings us up to date uh, on some of the issues of uh, perhaps what focus we should have now when we're looking at uh, bioaerosols, and, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with uh, what came out of it. Okay. Well, let me, you were a section editor for the remediation and control section, and what we'd like to do is kind of get into the Green Book a little bit more. We've got about three minutes until halftime, and then we're going to bring Carl Grimes on for a couple comments from him as well, talk a little bit about the conference. But I want to talk a little bit about the remediation section. There was a real emphasis in that section on risk communication. And can you tell us why there was so much emphasis when you bring all these people together, I guess, you know, like you explained, the remediators, et cetera, it seems like you came to a uh, consensus that you really needed to emphasize risk communication. Can you tell us why and what that is? Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I think I mentioned Brad Prusant. I remember years ago as we began to talk about certain aspects of dealing with uh, mold remediation and uh, mold growth in buildings, he, he said through his experience, and he's, uh, he was a private consultant, uh, 
through his experience, he would um, uh, find that communication was where we went wrong in so many situations, and as such, uh, can complicate any investigator's effort, any remediator, if they don't uh, have uh, if they don't have buy-in from the people within the building. And so these principles were included here in terms of how we can avoid problems and how to make it much easier in terms of uh, the, the final product. Um, and, and there are many studies that show that close attention to communication with the occupants results in a better working atmosphere. I mean, the, and, and, you know, I don't think that in itself is rocket science. Do you guys? I mean, I, no. some of it's common sense, and it goes to goes back to the basic principles of being honest uh, uh, and don't uh, overstate uh, your expertise. You know, uh, know, uh, uh, know the people to call on to help, to provide opinion, but uh, and, and provide respect to the people you're dealing with and make sure that they're informed and that the process as a whole is, uh, is something, a lucid one, that, that uh, they're, they're transparent and uh, understanding what's going on step by step, and they feel like they're a part of the effort. I mean, again, it, 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 it's, there's nothing uh, groundbreaking there, but I think that just being included as being so important, I think, uh, is, is a, uh, a step forward. Can you give a, a specific, I mean, a lot of people run into the situation where the building owner doesn't want to be as open as you would like. How do you, can you give us a tip on how to get the building owner to be a little more open when, when we need to do that? Well, and, and herein is in the green book itself, as you said, there's, there's some pretty good information on risk communication. And I think the, the thing to do is educate the building owner on the positives related to good communication. Uh, instead of making it a covert operation, <laughs> make it one that, uh, that is more open to the, uh, uh, to the people in the building such that uh, they don't feel that uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, cloak and dagger, but it's rather something they, they uh, can be informed about and, uh, and they can respond to maybe and, and assist uh, along the way, which is you've got to have that uh, participation, I think, for a successful project as a whole within a large building. We're going to have to go to the halftime segment here, uh, Dr. Shaughnessy. And what I'd like to do is also let listeners know that have texted message in, uh, messages in. We will get to those after the halftime segment here. And uh, I have another question on the Green Book after halftime, and then we're going to go into a little bit on UV light as well. So let's break for the halftime, Chris. All right. Halftime is brought to you by our sponsors today. Our sponsors for today's show include Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dry, or dri-eaz.com. 
and John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Let's go to our insurance issues segment for a moment with Brian McFarland. Hello, Brian. Do we have you on the line? Hey. hey. Good morning, guys. Good, good afternoon. Good morning. day, wherever you're listening from. How's, how's things in the insurance world, Brian? We talked a little before the show. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, things are things are going good, and as you and I talked about, uh, you know, rates are, are still currently low, but we're expecting that they're you know, going to be heading up here towards the end of 2009 and, and going from there. Um, today, I wanted to, to follow up on my series of the uh, seven sins of buying insurance. By, by, by talking about the exclusions or not understanding the exclusions on your policy is one of the sins. Uh, first of all, let's, let's make sure we have one thing clear, and that's that all policies have exclusions. Uh, you hear terms like all risks, special form, comprehensive, full coverage, uh, comprehensive liability, uh, these phrases do not mean that there, are, there, there aren't any exclusions. Uh, on a general liability policy, all the exclusions are listed on the deck pages of the policy or on the quote that's provided before you get the policy. Uh, the problem for most companies is, is that these are usually listed by the policy form number, not by the name of the exclusion. Uh, so in order to, to really understand what is included and excluded, it's real important that you work with somebody to make sure that you get those documents to read them before you buy it, uh, or, or somebody that can explain it to you. Uh, and, it, and the exclusions are critical to a policy. Uh, when you get a proposal for insurance, the first thing you should look at are the exclusions. Uh, and just one, for instance, let's say you're an asbestos consultant. All policies, that are all general liability and all E&O policies are going to are going to exclude asbestos, uh, and there's going to be an exclusion on the policy for that. They then will often add an endorsement that adds that, that coverage back in, so you should be looking for that as well. Uh, one other example would be uh, of an exclusion that was often overlooked is there was a policy that was just, just pulled off the market that was offered by Lloyds of London, uh, endorsed by several associations and uh, several laboratories, uh, that was called a moldy and no policy. Uh, when you read the exclusions on the policy, it became very clear that the insured, uh, who was a microbial or a mold consultant, uh, was only covered for sampling of mold, not for the reporting of results, writing scopes of work, or post-clearance testing. Uh, so we weren't really covering any of his work. The policy then went on to have another exclusion that said the insured warranted that general liability coverage was in place without a mold exclusion, and the E&O was secondary to this policy. And since that general liability policy doesn't exist, uh, but for many carrier, it basically voided or uh, all coverage that existed in that E&O policy. Uh, so, so as you can see, uh, exclusions are, are extremely important to understand. Uh, it's extremely important to work with somebody who understands those exclusions. They can get them to you before you buy a policy. Uh, and that's certainly what we specialize in at Legend. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to you guys. I know you wanted me to make it a short segment today. It's been very interesting, the, the show so far, and I look forward to the second half. Thank, Thank you, you, Brian. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, don't forget that first tip he gave, insurance rates will be going up. According to our insurance expert, uh, toward the end of 2009, you might want to lock in 
on uh, a two-year policy uh, Brian had mentioned before the show, which I thought was some very good, uh, a very good piece of information for the listeners. Okay, let's move it on over to, uh, we've got a special guest here today. Mr. Carl Grimes should be with us. Let's unmute Carl. Hello, Carl. Hello, Carl. Are you with us? Yeah, hello, Joe. Good day, Carl. Welcome to IAQ Radio. What's happening, Carl? Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, I, I was just kind of looking at the news here while uh, listening to Richard and the, the insurance uh, segment and so forth, and it, there was a piece of news that was very appropriate to what uh, Richard's talking about and what we want to talk about here now with the Green Book, and that's that uh, I used to live in Anchorage, Alaska. This is 30-some years ago now, So, but I kind of keep an eye on what's going on, and there's news up there that there's a uh, a periodically active volcano that they're warning people in the area, particularly Anchorage, which is the largest uh, metropolitan area, about an impending eruption, and that these volcanoes don't send out lava, but ash and dust and stuff that's in the air. And as I was looking at that, a news article about how people were running to get protective dust masks and goggles and so forth, about how we focus so much on the you know, the obvious and the visible, and we don't pay attention to the kinds of stuff that Richard's been talking about, which is the unseen particles, the unseen fumes, or the things in our environment that affect us. And uh, uh, I, I just found that kind of interesting and curious, and uh, particularly with some of his comments about uh, some of the simple obvious things that people can do, whether it's in the school or the home or whatever, about the air we breathe. I mean, uh, we can go several days a month or whatever without food. We can go several days without water, but we can only go about five to seven minutes without air. And that air to us is kind of like water is to fish. You know, does a fish know it's wet? Do we know we really have air that we need to? We're so immersed in it. I think we don't pay much attention and that's kind of what I, I, I think, uh, you know, indoor air, indoor air quality association that I'm all involved with, anything with the indoor environment, this is so so critical that we pay attention to that. I think you, you hit a good point, Carl. I was recently reviewing a, a course manual for uh, an association, and they pointed out the exact same thing, only a little more emphatically. We have regulations on the quality of our water. We have regulations on the quality of our food, but we don't have any regulations about the quality of our indoor air. Um, and I think that's something that eventually we're going to see uh, down the road. I think Richard was right that, you know, with the green building movement and all that, we're going to see more. Let's move on, though, a little bit about uh, we've got a couple questions that were texted in, but before we go there, I want to make sure that you give us, in your words, Carl, why, why do you think this Managing Mold in Buildings Conference is going to be a little different than the other mold conferences in the past. What, why would you encourage people to go to that conference? Well, to me, it's, uh, and I think I, I think the contributors and the, the the authors, the editors, and so forth, because they're so close to their own work, uh, with the kind of like the fish in the water. That sometimes some of the things that are obvious to outsiders that weren't involved in it. Uh, you know, aren't obvious to them. And what I'm picking up on 
with, with from reading the book and, and talking with uh, uh, not only Richard, but, you know, I, I wrote an interview for IE Connections uh, back last uh, fall of uh, Dr. Miller and uh, Don Weeks. And that's what really got me intrigued by this and talking with them and what some of the implications of what they were saying and since, you know, followed up with them. This, this is a book that's really a procedural difference. It's a, it's a different kind of outlook. Let's face it, what, we're, what we in the industry have been doing has been somewhat successful, but it's kind of like a glancing blow on the real problem. We're getting better at it. It used to be just mold and spore counting, and we moved to water damage, particularly with the Institute of Medicine report, where they included bacteria, insect population increase, uh, chemical releases from water-damaged materials. But this book takes it even further uh, into what is called in the book filth caused by moisture. So I have interpreted that to mean that instead of figuring out how many spores are dancing around in the air, uh, around their head like sugar plums on Christmas Eve or something that is making us sick or not making us sick and getting into all those arguments. They're taking more of the common sense approach that Richard was talking about earlier, like with schools, is the obvious things. If, it, if it's dirty, it's not good. And it really doesn't make any difference whether it's mold or bacteria or something else. And if you have water damage, particularly persistent or, you know, repeat water damage, um, you get this buildup of a slight film of moisture and mold and bacteria growing, which starts a whole life cycle, kind of like the life cycle of a forest. It starts with weeds and then small trees and then bigger ones, and it takes it takes a while before you get to the ponderosa pines. <laughs> so it's just that simple kind of concept that it goes back to what I heard 10, 12 years ago. If it's clean, clean it. If it's wet, dry it. And... That's what I see with the book, and they're doing this uh, in a in a interesting way. Even though the book is published by the American Industrial Hygiene Association, and they talk a lot about industrial hygienists uh, in the book, they've opened it up to other professionals that, and including medical professionals that are involved with this, and not from the point of view of measuring things according to a compliance point of view, you know, measure something and make sure you measure correctly, properly calibrated equipment and this sort of thing. Yes, that's essential, but it's essential for things that can be measured. And we can't, we can't really accurately measure mold because it's not uniform in the air or on surfaces. It's lumpy. It keeps changing. So lacking that, that doesn't mean that it's not valid, like some people are claiming. It, it, what it means is that Maybe there's a different way of looking at it, a different kind of criteria. And what the, the Green Book is, is really advocating is public health criteria. And that, I think, is the major, major difference. Public health criteria rather than industrial hygiene compliance measurements. And the other one that Richard mentioned earlier in the show is the emphasis on practitioners. You know, and the conference isn't for a group of researchers to get together to compare studies. It's and it's not just to educate people in the field that deal with this all the day, all the time. It includes the field practitioners, and the conference is set up in such a way that there's going to be room for discussion and the input from all the different facets uh, 
you know, involved involved with dampness and mold and whatever's going on in the in the indoor environment. All right. Well, thank you, Carl. We're gonna we're gonna bring you back in a minute, but I know Cliff has a comment. We want to get a, a quick. Uh, say hello to Dr. Wild too, and bring Richard back on the line. Well, actually, what I wanted to do is direct a paraphrase a question that we got from a listener and kind of pose it to Carl because I think it does uh, feed in really well with this University of Tulsa event that, that that's coming up. Great. Essentially, uh, we got texted in by a uh, by a listener a tragic situation that occurred in their home. They had a new home built and. Uh, it developed a mold problem afterwards, and really what the question is, is what sort of steps could a new home builder take to ensure that their homes don't develop indoor air quality problems during and post-construction? And it seems that maybe some new home builders should be going, uh, you know, to that event to kind of learn some of those techniques, and, uh, you know, perhaps you could comment on it, Carl. Oh, I, I agree. Um very emphatically, because uh, I'm in Denver, Colorado, which is semi-arid, and so people think that there's no mold here. But about 15 years ago, builders started building houses over expansive soils using a very innovative technique so that the soil wouldn't expand under the slab of the basement floor and crack it and heave it and destroy it. And they, they spent, uh, and that, before they figured it out, this innovative method, they, they cost the home builders somewhere around $90 million to fix all these problems. Well, the innovation that they came up with uh, solved the floor cracking problem, but it created a mold and bacterial growth problem that cost the, home, the, the builders another 70 to $80 million by the time they got things under control. So, new home, and also new home builders. Uh, I work with a lot of builders, unfortunately, after the fact. I've even worked with training some of them. But they, they sometimes, when, when they get out in the field and they have the subcontractors out there, they sometimes don't pay attention to simple things, again, simple common sense things like flashing, waterproofing, installed correctly. Don't put the, first of all, put flashing on windows but, and install it correctly so it, so it pushes the water outwards, not to the inside of the building. There's a $10 million home up in the mountains in a resort area that it cost just over $200,000 to fix all the water intrusion defects in that house before it was even finished being built. So, yeah, new, and I don't want to imply that all builders are bad or even most of them, but we think of old buildings. We think of water damage or slums or something like that, but that's not true. We had, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses in Denver over the last 10, 12, 15 years that were moldy and making some people sick before they even, uh, you know, uh, first occupant within the first days to weeks of, of being occupied. So, Cliff, that's, that's a good observation. It's not just old stuff. It's sometimes new and how it's built. Um, they, they need to, they need to uh, learn about building science and how the systems of the building operate so that they can prevent a lot of this. Absolutely. Let's, let's bring uh, Dr. Shaughnessy back on, and if you would, unmute Dr. Wow. I want to get a comment from Rich, uh, Dr. Shaughnessy first on that question. Did you want to add anything to that? Well, I'm listening carefully. Okay, and there's uh, Dr. Theater. Uh, hi there. Good afternoon. Good day. Uh, yeah, I'm listening carefully, and there are a couple of wonderful uh, points are being made. Uh, I, I, on my calendar, it says it's 2009, I think it is. 
And sometimes I wonder that we haven't learned how to build buildings, uh, which kind of bothers me at times. And uh, one that Richard will, uh, will enjoy is you know, when he found, and he said, it makes common sense that kids perform better in a, in, in a good environment. The Romans knew that 2,000 years ago. They said incorporate sane is meant sane. In a good body is a good mind. In other words, in a clean body is a clean mind. So that's, it's not something that we had to reinvent. And you kind of wonder why we are building schools which are not right. Let's put it that way. And again, I don't want to uh, accuse any uh, architect or something like this. But damn it, I think we ought to know how to do that right. Very good. Dr. Shaughnessy, any comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it goes back to what Carl said and what, what's just been said as well. I mean, it, I, I, I think uh, some common sense, building it right. And, and really it comes down to, if you, as a homeowner if, uh, or um, if you're trying to ensure um, uh, a more um, conducive environment that is uh, best for health related to the indoor air, I mean, there there are many there are many guidelines out there now related to um, uh, uh, home building. Um, they, I, I believe the ALA has their health house, and those guidelines are, are available on their website. Um, and, um, and and but really, what it comes down to is just you know our basic uh, ABCs on indoor air. You're you're trying to do a few things. You're trying to lower the sources, so you're looking for alternatives. Um, to things that are going to off-gas a huge amount into the into the environment, and uh, and uh, number two, you want to ventilate properly. In most homes, you know, as we tighten and tighten and tighten, we aren't even considering the impact related to um, indoor air. So there has to be that balance of uh, uh, mechanically introduced ventilation on some level, whether it be by exhaust or what. In, in new homes, and, and then air cleaning is so important as well. But, you know, when it comes to mold, it's, it's as simple as ABC specifically. I mean, it comes down to moisture, and, and we know that, dampness and moisture. And, and, and this is the exact culprit that the Institute of Medicine reported uh, we know has been associated with irritation and respiratory distress, uh, and, and so, whereas it's interesting, even though, even though we know moisture is the culprit, and dampness in homes is associated with poor health, the agent responsible, we still aren't really able to put our finger on it. I mean, there are many, many problems associated with damp environments. Um, so. So I think focusing on um, eliminating or, or, or trying to reduce moisture intrusion to, uh, to homes is just the key, and it, it's one we have to keep hammering and going after. And uh, and then how we assess it uh, uh, later in terms of if you have a water-damaged home, how do you deal with it? How do you remediate, and how do you judge whether or not it's uh, uh suitable for uh, 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 you know, reoccupying the home at a later time. You kind of touched on a question that was texted in here, uh, Dr. Shaughnessy. This is one of the biggest complaints. I'm going to just read it. Uh, one of the biggest complaints over 
this issue is that people who are sick beyond allergy and asthma cannot find knowledgeable physicians to treat them. And they go on to say that now that the GAO has issued their report on mold, stating it is plausible that people are being made ill from the toxins of mold, not just the allergens, what do you see occurring on the medical science side of the issue that will help those who are sick beyond asthma and allergy with respect to receiving medical treatment? Do you see that changing at all? Well, I, I actually I, I don't see a break in what the research has been doing and what and what where that is the direction it's been heading and and then where uh, it's going in the future as a whole and that and that being that yes I mean the the Institute of Medicine reports you know they certainly we have irritation certainly we have allergic uh, toxic responses and what related to damp and uh, moist buildings and the presence of mold and what, but but in terms of uh, uh, illnesses, specific illnesses, it's uh, it's still one of those. Uh, it doesn't. It, it's kind of one of those things, you know. Uh, we we know what we know, uh, and we're beginning to know what we don't know. And uh, then there's uh, what we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> and and, and the, the the point is, I mean, we're we're finding out a lot. We can't even we still can't pinpoint the agent in in damp buildings, which is directly responsible for some of the manis, uh, some of the manifestations related to poor health and respiratory disease. So, yeah, Dr. Shaughnessy. Um, yeah. Do we need to know what that exact causative agent is before we act, or do we have to sit around and wait? It's a loaded question, obviously. Do we have to sit around and wait until our researchers figure out exactly what this is that A causes B and what A and B are before yeah. we need to do anything? Or as a landlord or property manager, we have no liability legally or uh, morally to act or... Uh, well, I think I know the answer to the question in my mind thing, anyway, right. but I'd like to hear your response on that. Do do we have well, to wait for, to know what that causative agent is? Dec decades ago, it was you know, well we can't we can't dis disallow smoking or we can't recommend against smoking because we don't we aren't you know there's over two thousand agents in ETS and many of them are carcinogens and we aren't quite sure which one is causing or if it causes lung cancer and so on and so on. Well. It's the same thing here. I mean, it, it, we have to be on the safe, protective side, and I think it's more, more a process of, of simply trying to, um, trying to avoid uh, the, these types of problems in buildings by uh, eliminating or reducing the moisture and, and thus not really having to know the particular agent if we focus more on the uh, the reduction of the uh, age, uh, of the moisture itself in the building. All right. So a, a description often, rather than a measurement, a description of what's going on might be just as valid, at least from a practical point of view and a field practitioner point of view, as some sort of elaborate measurement and causation link. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, this goes... Uh, in the Green Book, there's this focus on remediation, and then how do you judge the effectiveness of re remediation related to mold? And uh, there were a few of us working on that, but primarily Phil Mori took the lead on that with uh, some help. Uh, and 
and and it, it it is somewhat of a shift where instead of looking at particular agents, it's looking at the amount of of substance that remains after remediation, and, and so it's more. For example, how much settled dust remains, uh, uh, and and uh, gravimetrically determining that a, a much simpler yes/no in terms of whether you're doing the job, um, and and I, I think that makes sense. You know, it's it's uh, the AIHA has endorsed for a number of years reduction of residual dust on material surfaces a level of less than 100 milligrams per square meter. And I think they got that from NADCA. And it might be somewhat arbitrary, but it, it, again, it makes sense in terms of looking more at uh, the composite material and making sure that you're cleaning properly and getting getting it reduced as best you can, as opposed to looking for individual agents. Uh, which, I mean, if you look at residual dust before and after, you're, you're probably going to find a lot of the same uh, species uh, still present after after the remediation, yet the total amount of dust uh, may be reduced by several orders of magnitude. So so it makes more sense to maybe focus on just uh, uh, ensuring a cleanliness factor, kind of the old white glove, black glove test, whatever, and... and uh, uh, making sure that you've you've gotten an environment as clean as you can related to the specific contamination. Well, you both kind of led into one of our questions anyway, and, and Dr. Shaughnessy, you did a great job of explaining that, judging the effectiveness of remediation section. I guess I wanted to add that some people get the impression that that's all the Green Book recommends and and it's not there's there's also still oh, all right. the other options so i just wanted to make sure we put that out so many other options the pros and the cons that's what's so wonderful about this uh, document as a whole and that's what we're going to be discussing in orlando i mean we have 21 speakers 14 of the speakers in orlando are direct either section editors or primary uh book editors of the document so uh, we're going to have a great discussion, and, and Carl's right. I mean, our our goal here is not another dialogue, scientific dialogue, but something practical uh, that, uh, that people can walk away with information that can be used. And uh, that's, that's our mission, and I'm, I'm darn, it's, we're going to achieve it one way or the other. I noticed you've got some physicians on the uh, on at least one, Dr. Portnoy. Do you have other? I mean, we're getting questions. I can't get to them all, unfortunately, listeners. But we're getting more questions about how do we get the physicians to understand or work with the building scientists and with the uh, with the researchers. Are, are you seeing changes in that respect? Not just the allergists, but the physicians. I, you know, I think. I think certainly there's the concern, but uh, there, uh, Jay Portnoy is a wonderful physician who is light years ahead of, of many other in his field, um, and he'll be able to talk to that. We have Kay Christ from NIOSH, who for many years has looked at the association between poor indoor air and health, and uh, she'll be talking on that as well. I think I'd, I'd leave it to them to be able to discuss that. But, uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. All right. Well, listen, we've, we're going to run a little bit. Do you have an extra 10 minutes, Dr. Shaughnessy? I'm fine. Okay, sure. great. We're running a little bit over today, but we had another subject that we – Cliff and I get a lot of questions on this subject, and 
and I go out and I do training courses and presentations and, and I'm dealing a lot more with mechanical systems people and there are a lot of questions about UV lights and, and their effectiveness and, and my personal opinion is they're being uh, they're being sold without really people understanding why they're selling them or why they're buying them. Can you talk to us a little bit about how UV light is used, where it might be useful and maybe where it wouldn't be as useful? Well, yeah, historically, historically, it, it, uh, the application has been in health healthcare facilities. And, and why we use it is, is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's for the uh, trying to reduce the risk of airborne transmission of disease and specifically the concern over tuberculosis many years ago and still today in densely occupied areas where you have a population that may uh, may uh, harbor that uh, bacterium and, and that disease, whether it be active or not. And, and so what you're trying to do is, uh, at least to some extent, provide some sort of reduction of risk uh, related to that uh, being transmitted from one patient or one person to the next. So... You think of those applications, uh, Cliff, and, and you think, you think, well, I'm think, you know, well, it makes sense in a healthcare facility. Clearly, you know, a hospital waiting uh, room, uh, certain wards of a hospital, and and then you think of things like homeless shelters and prison uh, uh, prison environments. Clearly, uh, another uh, environment where it, it does make good sense. You're trying to reduce this uh, passing from one. Uh, uh, occupant to the next, but uh, you know, then then we take it beyond that, w- where I think the renewed interest has been okay. What about your homes? What about your public environments? What about your schools? And and the question that I often pose is: Is this something necessary? And to what extent? And and how clean is clean? How how much do we want to make a mark within the general public sector as opposed to where it's been shown to be effective in healthcare against something specific, which is important, is uh, uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis. So, you know, and but again, do do we have that same concern in homes? And then, if uh, how effective is it on other bacteria and other fungi? I, there are many questions. Uh, we've we've looked at a lot of the research related to it and found that yes, it's useful in healthcare settings. Uh, and uh, it does have some impact related to the type of bacteria. Vegetative bacteria are, are more uh, susceptible to UV. Um, uh, but spore, spore type, uh, spore forming bacteria are not so susceptible. Uh, uh, fungal uh, uh, mold in general uh, are, are not so susceptible either because of their protective cell walls. So fungal and mold spores are much less susceptible. And then and I, I guess it gets back to you know what 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 is it good for? Is that what you were asking in general? I, yep. it, it depends how how far um, how far do you want to take it? And uh, the application uh, is more. I mean, we know it's a direct line of sight application. If you want it really to be effective, you've got to irradiate the areas, the surfaces, and what that that need to uh, that you're trying to impact. But uh, the effect upon the airstream is not so clear, especially when you have more uh, resistant types of species and uh, uh, spore-forming uh, bacteria and fungi present in, in the airstream. 
Very good. Gentlemen, let's go to the roundup. We're going to bring everybody back on, go around the table one time here, and see if we have some final questions. Let's, uh, let's go first back to Dr. Wild. Dieter, any questions or comments? Well, just a, yeah, no, no major questions, really, just a comment. And I, I think the, the, the common denominator uh, uh, from, from all I heard today is common sense. I mean, hey, yeah, common sense is often not very common, and common sense is sometimes very difficult to teach. I tried that. In the, at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was not always successful. I don't know why, but maybe I did something wrong. But um, uh, I, I, I think that is a healthy approach. And of what we talked about, I think you know, just about everybody understood of where we were, where we are today, and where we should be tomorrow. And I think that was put forth in a very nice and clear forward way. Well, thanks for that, Dieter. I, you know, the, the problem, I agree wholeheartedly, common sense, but I think where a lot of our listeners and others get frustrated is you can't introduce common sense into a court of law. And we need these studies that Dr. Shaughnessy and others are doing to show a direct correlation between A and B, if, if I'm stating that right, before we're going to be able to get people some kind of... Uh, restitution for the problems they've been caused by shoddy workmanship or whatever the case may be. Uh, Dr. Shaughnessy, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean it, 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 common sense is certainly important. Uh, it's certainly not as common as it should be. <laughs> but uh, in... Thanks for it Yeah. We, it, it comes down to anecdotal information is great, but it's not going to stand up that far, especially in a court. And so the studies to back that up, and, and, and it's what we were talking about, just one example. Clearly, you know, a student's going to work better if, it has, if he or she has an acceptable, uh, uh, well-ventilated, uh, a clean environment. Now, that's intuitive. But without the studies to back it up, which is what we, we are very difficult to do, uh, it, it, you're right. I mean, uh, common sense is important, but uh, we need to prove this. We need to show this, and especially in the economic times of today, we need to justify the investment, whatever it may be. Okay, let's go to Carl. Carl, any final comments or questions? Yeah, the, the one on common sense, that, that's, that's a good hot topic for me, too, because... Um, we, we, we don't need the, the rocket science, so to speak, to, to, to act on this. But yet common sense uh, has a, an inherent bias. From my point of view, common sense means one thing. And from a different point of view, say a physician who doesn't understand, uh, hasn't had the training on mold and mycotoxins and endotoxins from bacteria and whatever else is going on, their common sense is going to lead to a different conclusion. So this isn't something that 
was going to be solved anytime soon, and we do need the studies that Dr. Shaughnessy is talking about. But I'd just like to emphasize the point that perhaps the key question uh, to guide our common sense, to put us all on the same focal plane, is if a person doesn't feel well or get sick when they go into a building and they get better when they leave, that's important information. Yes, it's, uh, um, it's subjective, it's anecdotal, but we shouldn't be ignoring that, and physicians shouldn't be ignoring that either. Just because they don't have an answer doesn't mean that they shouldn't treat them. Just because that's in the in the in the air quality uh, uh, field uh, doesn't have all the answers doesn't mean that we should we should ignore certain situations. To me, the common sense starts with what's the occupant experience, and we need to pay attention. It's not definitive. It's not determinant. But we need to pay attention to that. And then after something is done to fix the building, ACGIH does it in two different places in that in the, the bioaerosols. The, the, the ultimate criteria for a complete successful remediation is that it can be reoccupied um, without health effects. EPA and their uh, uh, remediation for schools and commercial buildings says the same thing, that they should be, that people should be able to reoccupy the space with, without effects and without harm. So that's my comment on the common sense. We have to have the same starting point on common sense. Very good. And I don't, I don't want to imply that uh, Dr. Wild doesn't believe in research because I know he was a, a pretty prolific researcher back in the day, but I agree, you know, that we have to look at the common sense and then try and do the studies to show that people that, like you said, Carl, maybe my common sense is different from someone else's. Let's go over to Cliff, see if he has a question. I, I've got a comment first and, and then a question. I, I think, first of all, you can have respectful disagreement um, by renowned experts who have deep feelings about you know what they believe, and these people don't agree. And that's why we have courts, and that's why we have attorneys, and that's why we have physicians, and, and so on and so forth. And the one thing I'd just like to bring up, and someone wise once told me this, that the truth is no longer the truth once two people know it. Uh, my, my final question for uh, Dr. Shaughnessy really deals with this we're running into a lot of photocatalytic oxidation, and I'm just wondering whether or not uh, you think it has uh, the potential to be useful in solving indoor air quality problems. I, I think uh, photocatalytic oxidation, PCO, it it's, uh, may be the direction of the future, but right now it, it's got a lot of fine-tuning, Cliff, to, uh, to get all worked out. And uh, so it... it certainly is one that um, we're keeping our finger on and we're watching the research. I've, I've tested some of these uh, systems and found some to be highly ineffective and some that have some impact and yet at the same time there are intermediates along the way that you have to be concerned about if uh, the system is not properly designed and you may actually it's, uh, you may actually remove something and produce some aldehydes in mm -hmm. the in the process. So it's, uh, again, I don't want to downplay it because I think it's a technology that is being refined and worked on, and uh, perhaps it will show more promise in the future. Thank you. 
Very good. I want to uh, finish up by just asking Dr. Shaughnessy, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add or anything that, uh, you know, any questions or comments you had for other guests? No, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. I, I, I enjoyed it today. So I hope, uh, I hope uh, you, you got what you were looking for on my end, but uh, I, uh, all of these things are important. Uh, we hope that uh, yeah, everyone uh, will understand what we're trying to do. We, we rarely put on uh, symposiums or conferences these days. And last one we did was five years ago. I do hope that uh, we get a good response because I, we're trying to make this, uh, this conference uh, practical, uh, up-to-date, and useful for anyone attending. So I appreciate your your assistance in getting the word out. Well, we, uh, we appreciate you being a guest today. Our, our thanks go out to uh, Dr. Richard Shaughnessy for joining us here today on IAQ Radio. Also want to thank uh, Carl Grimes for helping us uh, with a little bit of commentary and a few questions. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, always great to have Dieter back on the phone. Um, in a moment, I want to tell you about next week's guest, but I also want to make sure I thank the wingman for helping us out at the controls, my partner, the Z-man, uh, Cliff Slotnick, for uh, co-hosting. Next week, we're going to have a show with uh, Bob Baker. We've, we've decided we need to bring some of these people back. Richard, it was too long, two years. Uh, we need to bring some back. We're going to bring Bob Baker back. We're going to talk about green. Um, where is ASHRAE headed with green issues? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some other issues and We'll uh, get into some more detail on that on the website. Check us out at iaqradio.com. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to all of our listeners. Without you, and I'm uh, sorry if we didn't get to some of your questions here today. There were just more than we could handle, but we appreciate those questions. Keep the emails coming in, and join us again next week at noon on Friday for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.